Welcome to the pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with GBAO. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the polls driving the latest news in politics, tech, and pop culture. How was your rainy weekend? Uh, it was good. I was on Meet the Press on Sunday. Yes, we saw you. And then took a train up to New York, got to New York, crucially, in time to watch Game of Thrones, and then spent a couple days on... Went on Outnumbered, was on Mornings with Maria, did, so it's been like a TV travel full couple of days. Taking a break, although I will be on Fox News Sunday on Sunday morning, so not a a super long break. Yeah, that's, uh, I I did a quarter mile race with Beckett. (laughs) How was that? (laughs) It's like Tacoma Park fun run and fun walk where they have like quarter mile, one mile, and 5K, and so like every child in the town comes out for it. That's fantastic. How is is Beckett into running? I mean, he just like he just sped as fast as he could, and then immediate, and then very quickly was like, "This is I can't keep up this pace for this entire quarter mile." <laughs> but, but it was you know, and it was also pouring rain, so I had like basically that was sort of the theme of the weekend. It's just running at full speed and then conking out yep. prematurely. Basically, no television. Didn't even make it through all of Game of Thrones. Oh, wow. I just saw it at the coffee cup. That's basically. Oh, so I should not spoil. You can spoil everything. it. I don't, no, I'm not going to. I'm not. I mean, listeners. I saw I half of it. Play. I read some things and I feel more or less like I know what's happening. There's only two left. Really? I thought there were like four or five. No, there's only two more episodes of this whole thing left and then it's done. My mother-in-law is visiting, and it was the very the first episode she had ever watched. And she's like, you know, who's that? Like, she's like, oh, <laughs> like we are not going to get you caught up. I'm so sorry, Joe. Like, it is, it's too late. <laughs> like, I'm like, she's, you know, she's the queen of this group. I mean, she just knew, you know, like the basics, you know. She, I mean, you know, if you hadn't watched it, you hadn't watched it. She's like, I hear the show is very big. I'm like, yes, and it is now basically over. Did she get, <laughs> what was her reaction to a dragon taking a spear? to the neck. Well, that I was. Oh, at, do you at miss that point, that? I was. Okay. Yeah, I, that was a little spoilery, but I, it doesn't. It's okay. I'm. A, I can't. It's fine. I, I don't. <laughs> I don't deserve to have the world stop for me. <laughs> well, at uh, least when it comes to Game of Thrones. Well, we've the uh, the polling world is booming. With yes, fresh piping hot polls. Lots of issue polling this week. Lots of issue polling this week. Uh, we are going to talk a little bit about, we have Mr. 46%. They're two big polls having the president's job approval sitting at 46%. We'll talk a little bit about this Trump bump. We'll also spend just a brief moment discussing Joe Mentum and 2020, as well as the bar fight. <laughs> I was That's super good. proud of that when I put that one in the script. That's um, good. Discussion of Attorney General Barr's handling of all things Mueller and beyond. We have a low bar for good humor here. Low bar. <laughs> hey, that was a pun within a pun. That was awesome. That was that was We're the inception right now <laughs> of puns. Go out of the uh, We've got two new polls from Pew. One on diversity and one big, phenomenally interesting study on question wording. Um, so we'll save that fun methodological nugget for the end for the, the hardcore super nerds that listen to the show all the way through. Yeah. Uh, socialism is not actually the new hotness. We will discuss. We'll talk a little about foreign policy and end on the Met Gala and who the Internet says had the best outfit. 
You know, your business partner tweeted out, what do Obama Trump voters think about the Met Gala or something? And I was of course like, he did. Of I was course like, he did. is Patrick working on the script too? Like, <laughs> like how do you know that's what we're doing? Of course he did. <laughs> it was uh, very funny. Yes. Uh, so let's briefly talk poll of the week. You guys at uh, GBAO have some new, th- is this a navigator? It is a navigator. So it's a navigator nuggets that we are it's for the May navigator which is not coming out yet but this poll is this particular question is coming out um because we're recording on Wednesday and by Thursday when this drops it will be out because of the New York Times story that ran today Wednesday about Trump's taxes um so we just wanted to share this one Trade-off question. We're going to talk a little bit about trade-off questions later, but this one trade-off question here and that shows a, a breakout by overall and by party. So even if you don't agree with either side completely, which do you find more convincing? Those who say seeing Trump's tax returns is about knowing who he really is. The American people have a right to know who pays the president. People should know if he's been honest about how successful he's been, how much he's contributed to charity, whether he has avoided or even illegally evaded taxes. The other side is, or do you agree with those who say the issue of Trump's tax returns was settled in 2016? This has been the president's argument. Like, this has been litigated. It's been, you know, people voted for him. Therefore, it's not an issue. Um, And it goes on a little bit more. They voted for him even though he hadn't released his returns. He's not going to release them. He's under audit, et cetera. The president, basically his uh, message here, they're just harassing him for demands of private information. So 60 percent agree with those who say we should see Trump's tax returns. Forty percent agree with Trump's position. Eighty nine percent of Democrats agree we should see Trump's tax returns. Sixty eight percent of independents and 20 percent of Republicans. Um, so not, you know, it's it's obviously there are party differences. Surprise, surprise. Spoiler. Um, but it's uh, interesting as it relates to the news that's coming out of Times today. Uh, I'm fascinated by the crosstabs here where 80 percent of Republicans choose that kind of latter option that like, look, this right. has been resolved. People are just being harassed. But actually one in five Republicans saying like, no, we, we would quite like to see the president's yeah. tax returns, uh, even in this contrast, which I think represents sort of the Republican argument pretty well. I, I, that's, an, that's a very interesting group of people. I mean, the, yep. the, there's also the salience question. On, of the broad range of things that you're making sure. voting decisions on, where does this fall? But the fact that one in five Republicans take the like, no, I want a no position is pretty, pretty interesting. There will be other questions that will come out on the tax return piece, because obviously this has been in the news more broadly, even not, you know, irrespective of the time story. And um, I, I think, you know, the the Republican side here, right, it says like it, almost, it kind of addresses the salience without actually saying it like, but you could you could say, well, people voted for him doesn't mean they voted for him because they liked the fact that he didn't release his tax returns, right? right. So they could still want his tax you know, people could still say, I support it, but I would still like to see his tax returns. Whether that changes people's vote is obviously not the subject of the question. But um, but there's been other public polling that even at the, even in, during 16, people thought he should release his tax returns. So this is not, you know, this has been a consistent finding for a while. So taking a look at the president's job approval, a slight uptick over the course of this week with some new polls coming out over the weekend. You had Gallup releasing a job approval number of 46 percent. You had uh, the Hill-Harris poll, 46 percent. Reuters Ipsos still has it down at 39 percent. But NBC Wall Street Journal also 46 percent among adults. Um, this it's it's 
good news. I mean, again, as we always say, that's bad news in historical context. It's good news for the president. His job approval among those uh, when asked about his handling of the economy also goes up, um, goes up to about 51 percent. So, you know, as we've typically seen, he does better when you ask about the economy versus um, just his standard job approval. This past week, the stock markets have been a little spooked by the news that a trade deal, a resolution to the trade conflict with China may not be imminent. Um, So these, you know, economic numbers could shift depending on how that resolves itself. But obviously the market a little shaky this week given that news. Uh, And the other big finding from the NBC Wall Street Journal poll that is good news for Republicans is that it appears the enthusiasm edge that Democrats held leading up to the midterms um, is no longer the case. Uh, NBC's analysis of the poll written by Chuck Todd, we've got the um, link in the show notes, says Democrats had two advantages that fueled their midterm victories, um, a success with independent voters and an edge in enthusiasm. Six months later, just one of those advantages remains. So they're still doing quite well with independent voters. But Republicans have had sort of a surge in interest lately, um, now with 75 percent saying they have high interest in the 2020 election. Yeah. So we'll see. I mean, you know, for some of these things, the question is, are these things real? Are they blips? Are they sort of natural fluctuations? Do they stick? Do they move? You know, the um, and we've talked about this before. And there's been studies that have shown that when there's an, an out, the outliers get more coverage than something that shows, you know, polling consistent with the pre- you know, the past polls, yeah. like not as, you know, sexy of a headline. So the Gallup favorable, you know, approval numbers made news, you know, because that was, you know, a, a good Gallup number for the president. Um you know, it's still similar band to where he's been, but if you know, but people still write that story because it seems like it's a little bit different than at least where Gallup's been. Same thing with the enthusiasm. I remember last cycles we were kind of headed into the congressional um, vote. You know, to the midterm vote, there was like a one day. There was like one poll that showed the enthusiasm was you know favoring Republicans or a tide or there was some kind of you know thing that had moved on the Republican side for enthusiasm and that like made huge news. Like, oh my God, everything is now gone. You know, topsy turvy. Even though it seemed like it was really just you know one poll, it was not like a a long term trend. But people wanted to make sure that. Everybody saw that there was – not that that isn't news. I'm not saying it's not news. But, you know, are the, these things become more salient because people want to like show the – you know, people want to write a story about volatility, about things moving. They want to make sure they're showing a both sides piece. You know, they don't want to miss a trend, et cetera. So I don't know. You know, and also does enthusiasm does, – what do we know? What, do, what does enthusiasm mean at this point, you know, in the odd year or two? So they're interest, it is interesting. Obviously, it makes a difference in the enthusiasm you saw in the midterm really, you know, did suggest, predict that uh, Democrats would have the advantage in November. Um, there's also some polling on Barr, and this is from um, – this is from Morning Consult, right? Uh, three in ten, just few, twenty-nine uh, percent approve of the way Barr has handled the release of the Mueller report. Um, disapproval of Barr is at thirty-nine percent. Uh, a third, you know, uh, with nearly a third, thirty-two percent have no uh, no opinion. So there's people pretty divided, basically, on how they feel. Yeah, the independents, twenty-eight percent say Barr's mostly helped Trump. Thirty-one percent say no, he's been working to inform the public, and forty-two percent say don't know. So independents kind of given a relatively mid-sized shrug. shrug. A shrug emoji. Shrug emoji. Speaking of shrug emoji, 2020 polling, <laughs> uh, which we've we've sort of committed to not spending a 
boatload of time talking yes. about, but just a brief check-in. Morning Consult has some new polling. Based on 15,770 interviews, I continue to have questions about how do you, for ostensibly free or for media coverage, conduct that many interviews? That is a bonkers number of interviews. But kudos to them. 44% of those folks. Like, that's all the people that are going to vote in the Democratic primary in some states. Well, it's, sorry. Yeah. I'm set, setting aside. Uh, well, it's 40% in, among Democratic primary voters nationally in the early voting states. It's 44%. Uh, saying they're supporting Joe Biden. Yeah. I'm, I'm expressing yeah. astonishment at the sample yeah, size. Yeah, the sample size um, is But high. Joe it's Biden has— Large is, sample size is not necessarily the same as survey quality. We're not—that's not to say—but that's not talking about this poll specifically. But large sample size alone is not— I'm just my job on the floor at that sample it's size. Not the only. Like, and at a certain point, there's diminishing returns to having so many people in your sample unless you're like, I would like to have a crosstab of Democrats that are redheaded and left-handed and watch Game of Thrones. Like, you could probably get a decent crosstab well, You out of can that. actually, <laughs> by the way, because somebody asked me, like, do you know, is there, like, Trump approval by state? Do you have that? Like, do you have that handy? I'm like, I do not have what? No, like in my drawer, open it up. Here you go. And I was like, I bet Morning Consult has this online. And in fact, they had this like, you have those are the things you can do. You can can go to Morning Consult and they have all that stuff. So you can do that when you have 10 times. Yeah. When you have 20 times more interviews than most other polls, you could do that. Right. So that's why they have like gubernatorial and Senate. Ratings and all that stuff. Yep. Um, so you have Joe Biden again, forty percent among early primary state voters. He's at forty four. Uh, gr- it, it's good news for him. His this was not just an oh he announced and got a small bump. Like the bump seems to be continuing, but it's still very early on. We got a long road ahead of us. Yeah, and so you know there have been lo- there's been lots of polling that we've talked about about how Sanders and Biden's voters name each other as their second choice, even though they are wildly different in all kinds of ways. Um, <laughs> and you know you would actually look at these numbers and see that gap between Biden and Sanders and say, well, maybe you know this is a- that's turning out to be true, and that you know, Sanders supporters are moving toward Biden. It's, I mean, you don't know where they were last week when they perhaps mm-hmm. were also in this poll, <laughs> the sample. But um, but you do see that it, it seems like the Biden support is coming, the, you know, the expense of Sanders or at least Sanders rating. Yeah. I mean, so regardless of where the primary is, because the primary, uh, you know, is for sure still malleable, um, General election numbers show that Trump is vulnerable. I mean, we were talking about his approval ratings and it may have a little bit of a surge in the last week, you know, depending on what polling outlet you're looking at, you know, whether it's CNN. But if you go further back, there's some in the last couple of weeks, there's other national polling by in by Emerson and that and, you know, everything that RCP has, if you take a look, shows that in most of the head to heads in the general, Trump is down compared to whoever, you know, any of the candidates that are tested and not every single candidate's been tested against Trump, you know, everywhere, obviously. But um, but, it, you know, it, it shows some vulnerability for Trump, both nationally, which is obviously not how we decide elections, but even in some states, too. And, um, you know, there's some Arizona polling that shows Trump down and uh, head to heads against a variety of different candidates. So, you know, against Biden or yeah, single digit lead, you know, just a narrow lead against candidates who are not necessarily well known. And the- Arizona is like, you know, is a... I don't know if it's in the battleground, but it is not sort of the sort of first – it may not be first tier 
Democratic pickup seat, you know, in order to get to the presidential. I don't know. In the CNN matchups, the thing that I thought was the most unusual or unexpected is that of all of them, okay, the idea that like Sanders and Biden are both about equally ahead of Trump by a single digit, but not in significant margin. Um, nationally in a head-to-head. Okay, fine. Uh, some of the lesser-known candidates like Buttigieg, Harris, slightly less well. Beto O'Rourke up 10? Which, de- like, that doesn't line up with conventional wisdom, certainly, but, like, also primary polling on the Democratic side. Like, that, that was just sort of an unusual, like, huh, kind of finding. Beto is the most electable out of all of these. I think all, you know, people clearly are unhappy with the president. So yep. that's what the polls seem to show. Well, hey, let's uh, let's take a quick break and then we'll get into a little bit of issue polling. Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees, and it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google slash certificates. All right, we're back. So let's talk capitalism and socialism. Yeah, no more 2020. Capitalism. Hot. Socialism, not, according to the polls. <laughs> I'm mean, getting to be super Republican. I'm so excited. I told you, conservative rage Kristen was showing up today. Yeah, I mean, I would say, well, I would say a couple things. I would say, first, it's interesting to, you know, what they did, they also did an interesting cross tab. This is from Monmouth. They asked a, do you have a positive or negative or neutral view of capitalism yeah. and socialism? Yep. Neither gets rave reviews, right? Right. Capitalism gets 39% positive, 40% neutral. Socialism gets 10% positive, 45% neutral. So capitalism is like soft, neutral, leans positive, where socialism is like neutral, leans negative. Like, that's kind of the way this shakes out. Right. Um, so then they post this chart. Were you going to describe the chart? Yeah, the chart is a crosstab, and it's of um, it's of total percent. So it's it's a— It took me a long time looking at this takes, chart to figure out what was going on. It takes a moment. It takes a moment, but it's but it's still—it's it's good because it's of total percent, not of the— column or row percent. So they show capitalism positive. And of the people who say capitalism is positive, 29, well, 29% of overall voters say they are positive towards capitalism and negative towards socialism. So most of the people who are positive towards towards capitalism are negative toward socialism. It's 29% of everybody, not 29% of the positive capitalism, 29% of everybody. Now, the people who are neutral on capitalism... Most of those people are also neutral on socialism, which is interesting, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, 30% of everybody is neutral toward both. So it's similar numbers are positive toward capitalism and negative toward socialism as are neutral toward both. That's each about, let's call it a third of everybody. Not that, not as many people are negative 
toward capitalism. But those people are more evenly divided on how they feel about socialism. So it's not like if you're negative on capitalism, you're automatically positive on socialism. That's just four, that group is just four percent of everybody. Yep. So that's, it's interesting. So yeah. Well, and from it's useful to show that cross tab, but not all. We don't always see this kind of thing, like questions crossed by each other when we're looking at public. I mean, we do it internally for internal polls all the time, but for public outlets, they don't always do that. They'll have like demographics by questions, but not questions. By other questions. Yeah, this was very cool. I mean, you've got about just under a third of the population that kind of takes the like Thatchery, like, yay, capitalism, boo, socialism view that I have uh, not so quietly embraced here on the show. Uh, but then there's like another 30% that they're the kind of shrug emoji or like, it's good and bad. There are this is, I think, or neutral could mean like I don't know what this label means, right? So that's one weakness of right. Typically, if you're doing like a fave unfave, you can give people an option that's like I don't know what this is. I don't really have a strong opinion. You can have an opinion of capitalism that is neutral, but very well informed, and is neutral because you're like it does some things well and it does some right. things badly. Or you could be neutral because you're like I don't know what you're talking about. Right. So that's one from a polling methodolo- methodology. Like, if we're picking you mean mitts, we can't figure it all that- out from this one question? <laughs> no. No. Um, so then they also ask, in terms, how much do each of the following descriptions match your view of socialism? Um, it takes away too many individual rights. You have 35% saying they agree a great deal, 25% somewhat, 13% not much, 20% not at all. Then they say, Socialism is a way to make things fairer for working people. And you there have 50% of respondents saying either somewhat or great deal that describes socialism. Um, but you just have a bigger chunk that thinks and thinks very intensely that it takes away individual rights, hence the trade-off. So, you know, the other thing is – and as you mentioned, and they have a, a couple questions to kind of tease at this is, and I've seen this, and this has been elsewhere too, um, which is, what do these labels mean to you? What do you think these labels mean? What kind of policies are included in these labels? And I don't know if I mentioned this on the show or just to somebody else or to you offline, right? But we did focus groups recently, and I said, okay, what's bothering you? And somebody said, well, you know, we're moving towards socialism. I'm like, well, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? And he said, social issues, which is, you know something a little bit different than like an economic socialism, social issues. And and maybe he he meant socialism. Maybe he meant – that wasn't the topic of the focus group, so I didn't really go chase down the answer of what exactly he meant by social issues. But social issues are things like abortion and gay marriage tend to be considered, quote, unquote, social issues. And would you really include that in the definition of socialism? Most people would not. And so, you know – but it has the word social in it. Anyway, so people maybe, you know, have different meanings or different understandings of how they view these words. And then they ask this question here in the Monmouth survey, you know, do you favor or oppose universal health care? And majorities do. We've seen that in other polling. Do you tend to view universal health care as a socialist policy, a capitalist policy, or neither? And a majority say neither, more say socialist than capitalist. I think some people might call that a socialist policy, the fact that a majority say neither, what does that mean for your people's understanding or their common understanding of the phrase? There's uh, did, did we talk a couple weeks ago about how Gallup has been asking this question since 1949? Like, what do you think socialism is? So this is, maybe we skipped, we didn't do a show that week. Gallup has been asking this question mm-hmm. going back to 1949. Um, and back in the 
post-World War II era when you asked people what does socialism mean, I think it was like 40-ish percent said it means the government owns the means of production. It means like the government runs the economy. It means communism. And a very small percentage said, oh, it means that we work together. It means social issues, whatever. And those numbers have kind of flipped. Mm -hmm. That now when you ask people what does socialism mean, it's only about a quarter that are like, oh, like it's the economic system Karl Marx said we should have. It means the government runs the economy. Right. Where most people now, or a plurality of people, say it's something like, oh, it means we all work together and there are benefits for people. Like it's, And so this, I think, is an interesting kind of strategic question Republicans should be asking themselves, is on the one hand, I will hear conservatives gripe about oh, the kids these days all love socialism because they think it's Denmark. They think socialism is like public schools and, you know, government infrastructure. And that's not what socialism is. Paid leave and Right. Such. Like that, that's, you know, they, they all think they're socialists because they don't know what socialism means. And then at the same time, they use the word socialist to describe policies the other side's like that we, we don't like, right? And so it's... If you believe that advocates of socialism are gaining favor for the word by defining socialism down, don't help them do their job right. by you defining socialism down and just using it as an all-purpose word you apply to everything the other side does. Right. So, right. so if I call it socialist, maybe you won't want paid leave anymore. Well, no, I still want paid leave, but I guess I'm, I'm going to call it socialist right. now. Right. Right. Yes. yes. So <laughs> welcome – so, no, I, but I still want my, paid leave. So uh, what word do I need to use to get so paid this leave? Is, this is my rant. <laughs> yeah, is we'll the, be voting Democrat. <laughs> this is my rant yeah. of the the new ways that the word socialism is getting used in our politics that are driving me a little nuts. Yeah. Um, and this poll, I think, supports a lot of that. That like this one. Do you tend to view universal health care as a socialist policy, a capitalist policy or neither? I do not like this question because a capitalist policy, like, what the – anyhow, it's, it's a strange bucket of answers to be offered people. <laughs> but you have 53% that say neither, who kind of agree with me. This is a weird freaking question. Um, but Or the, they're like, I like it, but I don't want to call it socialist. Sure. Yeah. So it's – Right? There's anyhow, probably some group of that. I, but I, I do think – if you do not like socialism, you can rest easy. I think conservatives are freaking out lately that they're like, oh, my God, there's a rising tide of people loving socialism. And only 10 percent of people say their opinion of socialism is positive. So everyone take a deep breath. There is more. Me included. There is more. <laughs> <laughs> there is more stuff that I think, you know, this is a interesting topic for discussion and study for sure. Um, and this is just begins to scratch the surface. Okay. Something that does a little bit more than scratch the surface is this latest uh, poll that the folks at my office at GBAO have done with the folks at CAP uh, on foreign policy. So um, there is a really great report that people should read. Uh, written by John Halpin and others at CAP and co-authored by folks at my firm, um, by uh, 
Carl Agney, Jim Gerstein, and Nisha Jane. And so folks should read it. It is, as I was reading, I'm like, man, this is massive. And then I get to the part of the report where it says, because of the massive amount of stuff in this survey, we then segment it. I was like, yes, it is massive. Like, thank you for validating where I am, <laughs> how I'm feeling about this report. So there is a lot in there. And it was written up in the Post and um, and, some pla- and some other places, too. So folks should go take a look. Um, so to just go into it briefly, uh, I think there are were a few things that stood out to me as I kind of did a cursory look at it, but folks should look at it for themselves. Um, you know, one is how do people look at, you know, how do people think about the the impact of foreign policy on themselves and on their family and does it matter to them? And the, you didn't, this is one of the places where you didn't really see a lot of differences by, demographically. Two-thirds say foreign policy decisions that our government makes, it matters, it matters to me. You know, fewer, 29% say it doesn't matter. Almost no difference by party. I mean, it's rare, as folks who listen to the show know, it's rare that we see that. Um, You know, when you kind of ask specifically, well, how much does what happens to regular people in other countries impact you? You know, well, then you have actually fewer say, well, it has a real impact. You know, about 10 percent say it impacts me a great deal. Thirty six percent say some. Again, not massive differences by party there either. But when you say it, does the government policy matter? Yes. Well, does it have an impact? How much is the impact on your family? Well, it's, you know, it's a little bit it's a little bit lower. Um, But still. The fact that there's kind of a bipartisan view toward it, I think, is interesting. Um, and then this other question is: Do you have? Do you, are you generally confused by our foreign policy goals, and you don't really understand what the U.S. is trying to accomplish, or do you generally have a good understanding of our foreign policy goals? And this is pretty divided. About a, you know, just barely half say I, I have a good understanding, but 43% say I'm generally confused. Democrats are more likely to be confused. 52% of Democrats say they're confused about our foreign policy goals. 62% of Republicans say I generally have a clear understanding. But, you know, there's that's still not that big of a partisan gap compared to other things that we've seen or other things that we'll see later in this survey. I mean, a big, educa- you know, a big gap by sort of news engagement. But it's interesting that people feel, you know, not totally sure about what our foreign policy goals are. Yet then... This is something I saw come up in quite a few places, and then I'll I'll pause, and then you can look at you know see what your reactions were. Um, is this like what do you how important do you think these these various goals are? And it goes through a bunch of different foreign policy goals, like you know trade and immigration and terrorism and such. And what's low on this list is promoting democracy and democratic values around the world, which is like a thing that you hear people you know kind of talk about a lot for a long time as a as a foreign policy goal or America's role and such, it's low on what people think our foreign policy goals are. That's true across party lines. It's also kind of low on what people think our goals should be, um, which I thought, you know, was was interesting. Um, and then there was another question, you know, do American values only apply to certain people and in certain parts of the world, like American values like democracy, are these universal um, 45% say, yes, they're universal, and a majority say, well, that only applies really to certain people around the world. So I have found that a little bit interesting. And then I, I, before I talk about the segments and clusters, I want to see if you had any other Yeah, the, the only other big finding that stuck out to me, it sort of confirmed a pattern that you've seen in tons of other work about – younger voters being more likely to say, let's focus at home. Like there's so much talk about, oh, well, young people are growing up in this global world and aren't they more connected and aren't they going to be more interested in America? 
being playing a, a leadership role in the world. And I have almost never seen polling that suggests that, that typically younger generations are more like, let's let's focus at home first. And this is just another data point that supports that. Um, the contrast was America is stronger when we focus on our own problems instead of inserting ourselves into other countries' problems versus America is stronger when we take a leading role in the world to protect our national interests and advance common goals with other countries. It's baby boomers and the silent generation where six and 10 say we're stronger when we're leading the world. But for Gen X, Gen Z, and millennials, it's the sl- it's more split, but slight, plur- you know, plurality says we're stronger when we focus at home. Yeah, right. So, the but he- hey, millennials and Gen uh, Gen X agree on something, right? That like never happens, right? And so the head, <laughs> right? So right, we didn't talk about this. You, you brought it up, right? And the headline for this chart is on on views toward the U.S.'s global leadership role. The generational gap is greater than the partisan gap. So it's another question where. There is potentially some agreement across party lines or at least some similarities, which, you know, is kind of a good thing. Um, And uh, they also tested a variety of different, you know, policy worldviews and to see what people, you know, what what percent of people strongly agree with them. And the number one is in order to remain competitive in the world, the U.S. must invest more to improve our own infrastructure, education and health care, not just increase military and defense spending, which is interesting because, you know, there's been topics of conversation about infrastructure over the last couple of weeks. I mean, lots of weeks, I guess, have been infrastructure week, but this has come up recently. Um, so it, it's interesting to me that that was pretty high up there. Um, even, you know, lower on this list, as I mentioned earlier, was, you know, uh, you know, talking about promoting democratic values. That's a little bit lower on the list. But what's at the bottom, though, is that the U.S. must prioritize spending for military defense, even if it means making cuts in other areas, kind of like the opposite of that mm-hmm. uh, spending priority question. Now, then the last thing, and folks should take a look at this, is clusters, segments. So there may, you know, they came up with four different segments based on a variety of different, you know, metrics and questions here. Um the largest one were Trump nationalists. That's 33% of the electorate. There's a foreign policy disengage, which is about a fifth. Global activists, that's 28% of the electorate. And then traditional internationalists, that's about 18% of the electorate. And so the global activists, you know, are – so those are folks who are high on things like working with allies on climate change and disease, poverty, fighting for global equal rights, like kind of a, you know, a progressive – view on international engagement. There are, de- you know, Democratic, African-American, college-educated women, high social trust. Uh, their priorities are climate change and Russian interference in politics. So that's the largest of that, you know, kind of global engagement side. And then the largest of the less global engagement side are the Trump nationalists who are prioritizing military spending, focusing on people at home, shouldn't be the world's policemen. They're more likely to be Republicans, white non-college, evangelicals, lower social trust, et cetera. Well, let's talk a little bit now about this Pew on diversity poll because I think, you know, talking about the, the illegal immigration, et cetera, sort of sets up this kind of discussion about what do people think about the changing racial and ethnic diversity of the U.S. Um, some, some really interesting polls from Pew Social Trends. Um, this was taken January 22nd to February 5th, so it's a couple months old. Um, but they find that about 75% of Americans say that it is important 
uh, for companies and organizations to promote racial and ethnic diversity in their workplace. But only 24% say that they think that organizations should take race and ethnicity into account in order to increase diversity. Um, I thought this poll was interesting because I'm working on a project right now for a client. Some of this research will be public uh, in coming weeks um, where we try to tackle this question. And it's interesting that you find across the political spectrum, there is pe- people believe there's value in racial and ethnic diversity. But there are big differences in how people think you should get there and what they view as sort of action that kind of goes too far or tries too hard to kind of artificially engineer what what constitutes um, racial and ethnic diversity. Um, and so this Pew research, I think, kind of lends some support to the idea that that's how people are thinking about this. Um, they ask people, uh, to, uh, do you believe that it's had a positive or negative impact that the U.S. population is made up of people of many different races and ethnicities? 64% of all adults say that's been positive, including half of Republicans and three quarters of Democrats. Um, however, the fact that America is very diverse is also viewed as something that makes it harder for policymakers to solve the country's problems. I thought this was interesting, that you have a majority of Republicans and 42% of Democrats who say that America being so diverse sort of makes it harder to solve problems. Um, it's just under half then also says, well, that doesn't make much of a difference. Um, very few actually thinks it makes it easier to solve problems. Right. This is one of the questions where you had the most similarity across party lines because mm-hmm. you can think it makes it harder kind of no matter what you – even if you disagree – you know, with yep. other respondents on what those policy outcomes should be or what policymakers can do, you could still think it makes it harder for some reason. The other question where there was, I thought, an interesting party divide um, was on this question of, do you uh, wish that the that the community where you lived was more racially mixed, less racially mixed, or about as racially mixed as it is? Do you wish you lived in a more diverse community? Um, and that Republicans, by and large, say, like, they're kind of fine with, with – about how things are, um, where Democrats are sort of split about half say that they're happy, you know, about they want to live in a neighborhood that's about like where they live. But about 45 percent say they wish they lived in a more sort of racially mixed neighborhood. So big differences on just kind of like preferences in do they want to would they like to change the community that they live in versus are they kind of content with how things are? Yeah, I mean, the other thing that was interesting that um, the, uh, Pew did in some of the breakouts, but not all of them, was to com- make sure that they were comparing not just Democrats to Republicans, but d- white Democrats to white Republicans, given that Democrats are going to be, you know, disproportionately mm-hmm. less white than Republicans. Um, and so to make sure they were, com- you know, uh, comparing. Oh, and, and those numbers I just gave were among white Republicans right. versus white so Democrats. They don't, they I don't do that, that everywhere. Sorry. But so to make sure that, you know, be given that, you know, there are differences by party and there are also differences by race, do they want to, you know, overest or, you know, overshow, I guess, or overestimate people's sense of what the party differences were without, um, because they included uh, non-whites with whites in the Democrats. Uh, grouping. So they did that in a couple places. And one place where I thought it was particularly interesting was this question, how much would it bother you to hear people speak a language other than English in a public place? And this isn't like a po- this isn't a policy outcome. Like they talk about we can talk about a little bit more, you know, about schooling. You had the thing, you know, question about 
about work. Um, those are, you know, how do policymakers feel? Those are policy-specific kinds of questions. This even, even how do you feel about your neighborhood? There, there's a, po- it's not, that's not just sort of your perception. There is also a policy, you know, component to it. Hearing people speak another language in a public place, like that's not, that's not a policy, you know, thought. That's just how you feel about seeing people speak another language. Um, it's like a perception of your own, uh, you know, it's just a perception of how people feel about, you know, racial and ethnic and, and country of origin identities. Um, and there they found um, that there was a big difference between Republicans and Democrats. About half of Republicans said they feel at least, of white Republicans feel they feel at least somewhat bothered by hearing someone speak another language in a foreign place, um, you had a lot fewer white Democrats feel that way. Um, you had, you know, 58 percent of white Democrats say that not at all. They wouldn't be, feel at all bothered by that. Uh, only a quarter of white Republicans feel that way. And so, you know, you see these questions and other these kinds of differences in other places. I mean, that to me, I thought was a very telling, you know, and people are probably under, they might be underreporting perhaps their views on that. You know, I don't know if Democrats or Republicans under overreport differently, you know, that's not the scope of the study. But I found that kind of, you know, troubling that half of Republicans feel that way. I mean, it's just seeing somebody speak. It doesn't mean, I mean, you know, we don't need to talk about the merits of whether how one should feel. One should not feel bothered if you hear someone speaking a language other than English in in a public place. But um, so I found that kind of like a sad state of like the gulf between the parties, um, that that number in particular. There's also, I mean, the generation divide there where you have uh, almost half, you have 45% of those 65 and up who say a lot or some. But for those who are under, for whites under the age of 30, 55% say it wouldn't bother them at all. So big, big generation gap on that question too. Well, let's take a quick break again. There's another thing we've got from Pew that I'm excited to dive into, which is a new study they've got on survey methodology. And when you ask people questions, giving them a checklist and saying, check all that apply, how does that influence the actual result of the poll? We'll talk about that when we come back. Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. According to studies, less than 13% of all inventors who hold a U.S. patent are women. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of their white counterparts. But we can fix that by increasing participation in innovation and patenting by underrepresented groups. It would quadruple the number of American inventors and increase annual GDP by almost $1 trillion. Invent Together is a coalition of organizations, companies, universities, and concerned citizens committed to ensuring that everyone has the opportunity to invent and patent. Because the more diverse the American patent system gets, the stronger and more successful our nation will become. What can you do to help diverse inventors patent and unleash economic opportunity? Find out at inventtogether.org. Learn more and take action today. All right, we're back. So let's get into the real nerd weeds on this one. So there are... Do you had our number where they're like, hey, ladies, do you want to talk about our methodological study on question wording? And we're like, yes, we do. Yep. So (laughs) to, to explain to listeners what this is about, imagine that we are taking a survey and we are trying to find out people's preferences for hamburger toppings. 
There are two ways you as a pollster can go about this. I could ask a series of questions. Do you like tomato on your hamburger? Yes or no. Do you like cheese on your hamburger? Yes or no. Do you like onions on your hamburger? Yes or no. And ask a bunch of different questions. Or I could say, which of the following do you like on a hamburger? Check all that apply or none if none apply. Right. And you list all of them and then people can check boxes. And you can do this on a telephone survey too where you just But say, I like the impossible burger, Kristen. Where do I check? Okay, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> sorry. This it is can Tacoma be vegan, Park. Bubba Burger, Tofu a, Burger. This is Tacoma Park. <laughs> so when you're asking these questions, theoretically, you'd like to think that the same percentage of people would check I like tomato on my hamburger in both formats. But we know it's not necessarily the case that the way you present the question will lead to either under or over reporting or could potentially lead to under or over reporting. So Pew has conducted a randomized experiment on this front. What they did was they asked people to answer whether or not they had had a variety of negative things happen to them, being denied coverage by a health insurance company, ever being asked to pay a bribe, ever having had their wallet or purse stolen, had their home broken into. Um, and half of the respondents got asked this in like a checklist, like a check all that apply. Any of these bad things has happened to you, click it. And then other people were asked, okay, yes or no, you've had your home broken into. Yes or no, you had your purse or wallet right. stolen. They find that when you force people to say yes or no, they're much more likely on some things to say, yes, that has happened to me. Similarly, they asked, which of the following describes you well? Honor and duty are my core values, yes or no. I'm interested in visiting other countries, yes or no. Um, and they find that when you're asking people yes or no, they're more likely to say yes than they are to just choose that item off of a list right. of things right. when you say check all that apply. Now, their recommendation coming out of this is that the forced choice, like they're going to start using these forced choice formats, that it, they believe it more accurately captures the real result because people have to think about each one. And this is all online. This right. is all online. Um, they find that the uh, essentially that the question format clearly affected the percentage of people choosing each one, and they believe that the higher number is the more accurate right. response. And right. so that's the direction they're going to go from now on. Now, if you just want to know what's the most common topping, is it tomatoes, is it onions, Then and you're pressed for time because the, the forced choice takes longer than here's a list, right? And, uh, you know, maybe other people have had this experience when you have to do like a health form and they're like, which of these like 85 different things have you had happen to you? And I just like do a line n through the no, right? Yep. And if you have to go through each of them, do you pause on like, well, maybe I have had that, you know? For, so it's like, it's like that. You're more likely to say yes, but it takes more time to go through all those individual questions than it does to just go through one whole list and just decide which of those you're going to say yes to, um, if any. And so if you just want to know which is the top number one thing and you don't actually need to know with precision what percentage, say tomatoes or you know whatever else, then you can go with a – multi, you know, check it all. Check yeah, it all this version. was the... the, the Multi-punch. The, one of the key findings is that even though the uh, forced choice responses always got higher percentages, the, the order, yeah. like if you were ranking them, you know, overcharged by a mechanic or home repairman, 
that's the thing that people are most likely to say has happened to them yep. in both formats. And then after that, you've had your purse or wallet stolen. Same percentage of people say that in kind of both formats. Um, similarly with all of the like the positive things. Oh, I'm very focused on my professional life and career. Compassion and helping others are my values. The ranking of these things is still mostly the same um, regardless of which way you ask it. It's just the percentages are higher for forced choice. Right. Yep. So super interesting because these are the kinds of things that, you know, Pew and other outlets, and they're going to present this at APOR. So APOR folks should go check it out or go read the report, which will be live by the time you're listening to this. But these are the kinds of things that like, you know, sometimes people do internal polling or public polling outlets don't necessarily have the space or bandwidth to do a methodological test because – you know, you want to know the answer to the question, not spend your, you know, your survey real estate split sampling and testing all these things. Your goal is to find out how many people like tomatoes. So you'd make a decision on how to ask that question. But when Pew sort of releases this kind of thing into the wild, as well as all the other folks who are going to be at APOR with their various studies, it helps all of us. So thank you. So last but not least, let's talk about the Met Gala. Yeah. Did you observe, did you follow bit. the coverage of this? Is this like I a mean, thing for you? No, because I mean, I'm not like full on into like celebrities and fashion, but I'm not not into that. I do like camp. I think of camp, so the theme of camp, it's the theme of the Met Gala has always got a different like, different theme is camp, which I just assume is like drag queens and burlesque shows. I don't know if there's some other definition of camp. And I, th- by the way, those two things are like, two of my favorite things. So like I was ready for, I'm like, Ooh, camp. Okay. And then I'm like, I don't, what, I don't, are these things camp? I don't know. Maybe my, why is Jared Leto carrying his, his head, around? head, his head around? Is that camp? Why is Katy Perry look like a chandelier? Like, I don't, you know, maybe my definition of camp was too narrow. Or maybe people were just using camp as like anything like whimsical slash avant-garde. So, so what I don't the, know. One of the outfits that is in the exhibit. So this is the, the Met Gala is always kind of the kickoff of the, the Met's Costume Institute like has a new exhibit every year. And this year their exhibit is like camp in fashion. And so one of the dresses they have on display is remember when Bjork wore that swan dress? Like that's what they're holding up as like this is camp. Right. Bjork dressed with like a swan. Yeah. That's camp. Right. So you had I I think like viewed Mm. through that lens like Katy Perry walking around an after party dressed like a flippin cheeseburger. Maybe that's why my cheeseburger question was on my mind. Like, makes a little more sense. Um, So there was a poll conducted at Billboard, which asked which musician had your favorite Met Gala look. So we're eliminating actors and actresses. We're just talking musicians, Um, although there's plenty of crossover these days. Uh, And in the top position is Lady Gaga, 28%. She was one of the co-hosts of the Met Gala. And she... um, Actually, had four different outfits down the red carpet. One was a like a very voluminous fuchsia dress that then became a less voluminous black dress that became a less voluminous fuchsia dress that became like a bra and underwear and fishnets. Yeah, progressively, and sure. so like she had a lot of different outfits going on. In second place, you kind of have a tie between uh, Harry Styles and Katy Perry. Harry Styles, another co-host, he sort of wore like a sheer black. Shirt and and he's like a boy band guy. Why was he a co? Uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. I'm gonna uh, the sound. This is not gonna be one of my Margie's so really like a millennial m- as a boy Because I'm looking at this list and I'm like, who are these one people? One Direction. Um, but then he wound up being in 
Uh, the Christopher Nolan movie from last year, Dunkirk, played a role in that. So he's made the he's made the transition, the Justin Timberlake esque transition from boy band frontman to legitimate. He hasn't made it. He hasn't made it to the Margie top twenty. That's uh, for sure. And then the other second place was Katy Perry in her chandelier outfit. I am the two percent. I voted for Katie Casey Musgraves. Who is that? She is a country singer mm. with broad crossover appeal. Okay. Um, I described her as the Katy Perry of country music the other day, knowing that that was an imperfect description and kind of got smacked down for it by a friend who was like, that's not what Katie Musker... But I, 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 that's sort of kind of how I view her. Um, only 2%, but she came dressed as a full-on Barbie. The fashion line Moschino dressed her and they have actually released a Barbie like in like a pink leather long gown she had a purse shaped like a pink hair dryer hmm. it was i think a st- it was the most memorable look i think I'm, I'm looking at the images and okay what's her name casey musgraves okay um and then okay. who else got a lot of votes there's one other person oh gwen stefani 10 percent. but and this was a criticism not of her outfit but of she basically wore something that i can see her wearing to perform in for a concert which is fine but mm-hmm. like for the met gala I don't know, like, go bigger? But 10%, that's, I mean, it's more votes than Casey Musgraves got, so. To just bring it all back, how much of this is really hard ID, honestly? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Do I mean, really mean anything? Cardi B has, Kanye West, Cardi B, these have great name ID, but they did not get a. Kanye West has high unfavorable, surely. Sure, sure. That affect his Met Gala. But I don't feel like... Well, he's also not really bringing his A-game. I'm looking at these images now. All right. I mean, he <laughs> well, looks Kanye, like... Kanye showed up. Like, I mean, like, I'm no. sorry. He looks like... I he mean, didn't, no he didn't wonder. Play. Yeah. I mean, give me a break. I mean, he looks like he's going to Ace Hardware <laughs> in this outfit. For sure. <laughs> and so then Kim Kardashian's outfit, there is like backstory behind it, but she herself is not necessarily a musician. So maybe that's the grounds on which they are receiving... Very few votes in this poll. Okay. <laughs> so right, what did we learn? I bumped into your last week Trendline guest last night when we were sitting at the patio at Ashley? Red Light. Yes, on oh. 14th Street. And Ashley walked on by and I said, how was the trend line? And she said it was great. I was so glad she was there, although she also brought someone to take pictures. And I do not show up to go to the, tape the trend line like... In my Sunday best. So <laughs> there's definitely a photo out there of me with like still kind of damp hair and no makeup, like interviewing well, her. Well, maybe but you should. You could. I just, did not object because I am not a strong curator you, of my public can, image. Can but. you like post? Because right now you look like, you know. Oh, my, my wasted TV makeup? Yes. And so maybe you can like paste that <laughs> into, although it's a different studio. So you could have like people, it would be like the coffee cup from Game of Thrones. You'd be like, <laughs> why does Kristen's head have like white padded cell stuff behind her? But like Ashley is in, you know, wood paneled Sirius XM studio or whatever. Yeah, I've got fake eyelashes on and I don't normally wear those to Sirius. They're doing part. that at MSNBC now? The trend continues, Margie. <laughs> they asked. I said yes. Wow. I didn't have to. I could have declined. Huh. All about that glam look, though. Okay. People are going to like <laughs> really need to wait to the end for the, the real breaking news. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so issue polling is good. That's what we learned this week. It is good. Issue polling is good. And you should do it. And you should read others. Okay. 
Um, what's, who's on the chat line this week? Uh, this week, we it's still a work in progress because we are taping the show a little earlier this week. Um, but I believe, I'm hoping we're going to have on Neil Ferguson calling in from Switzerland. Okay. Um, who is, uh, he wrote an interesting piece that was extremely selfie vote adjacent. And I want to interview him about it. It's sort of about the widening partisan and generation gaps in American culture. Um, so that should be fun. And the big one, Emily Swanson from the AP to talk a little bit Aww. about AP VoteCast fun stuff. Cool. They are going to be having a party up at APOR. Yes. I'm so hyped for APOR. I'm only going to APOR for like 24 hours, but I'm going to make the most of it. It's going to be great. Um, I'm going up for the AP VoteCast party. <laughs> wow. You are committed. No, that's, I mean, that's that's why I chose the night that yes. I'm going. No, that's um, good. So it'll be fun. Cool. I'm, so I'm not going to be trying. We will not be doing a like pollsters meetup happy no. hour because last time we tried that, it was we were a victim of our own success. We had too many people, and that bar would not let us like stand in the bar area, which really caused go find Kristen at A4. Some logistical problems. She will be at so. the AP party. Right? Yes, I'll be around. I'll be around on Saturday. Mostly she will have it. regular eyelashes. I. <laughs> you don't know. You've, you don't know. <laughs> she will probably have. I'll regular go in a eyelashes. camp theme. <laughs> I, guys, I heard that Apor had a camp theme this year. Kristen, that is not camp. <laughs> that is MM Lafleur. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, where can people find us? You can find us, us on Twitter at, at the Pollsters individually and at Margie O'Meara and at K Soltis Anderson. I'm back, guys. Kind of. Uh, You can find us at www.thepolsters.com or on Facebook. Thanks. Bye.